But one thing that I appreciate about Soma in our church is that um, although that sounds a little different than how that song sounded in the church that I grew up in back east, the words are still the same. Our God is still the same. A little different flavor on the, on the words, but our God is still the same. Can we get an amen? Amen. Amen. I appreciate you guys. My name is Dante Cook. I'm one of the members and elders at this church. Uh, we've been at Soma, Soma Global, for about a decade, um, and we've been downtown coming up on seven years um, coming up this fall. So praise God. God has been so good and so faithful to us in this church, and I truly don't come to church because I have to. I come because I get to. Like, I'm spurred into living a more generous life because of you guys. And so, you know, Tayshawn said, or, or I just talked to Tayshawn earlier, and he said, you know, about 20 people came yesterday to do the cleanup and the, the workday outside. And unfortunately, I couldn't come. But we just continually spur each other on to do good works in the Lord. So praise God for our church in that. What am I talking about today? I'm talking about money. Okay. And yes, I am on the finance team, and no, I don't have a private jet. I'm not pulling a fast one on you guys. And, and I just want to go down to the practical basics of what is money. And money is simply a human invented technology that we use to store economic value across space and time to eventually trade for goods and services. And so a lot of things have been used for money throughout the course of history. There's been gold. There's been silver, there's been large stones, there's been precious stones, there's been government-backed paper. If you go to prison, there's cigarettes, right? That is a form of money. But ultimately, money comes down to three things, accounting one-on-one, a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value. But really, it's just a tool that we use to expedite trade. Like, it's much easier for me to give you money than for all of us to be carrying all of our goods with us at all times. Back in the bartering days, I'd be like, yo, I need four, four, uh, four bushels of wheat, and I got like two pigs on my back. And it's like, yo, bro, here, let me just give you some money so you don't have to carry everything that you own with you all the time. Saves a, a, a tremendous amount of time and energy. But really, like God, even in the Bible, talks about money. This is what we're going to get into today. As I've journeyed through my uh, evolution as a Christian, my mom and my dad, my parents did not grow up with money. They grew up poor. My mom, um, actually, it, it, but what's interesting about my mom's childhood, I think about it like it's crazy. They talk about their childhood growing up outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and Bel Air being one of the most beautiful and best times that they could ever imagine. It was like 26 of them in like one house. But they lived on a farm. Don't name the animals because they're going to be on the table type deal. Right? Like, if we pass by a turtle on the road, we have a turtle soup kind of deal. But I didn't learn a ton about money. A lot of what I've learned about money, and the world doesn't teach us about money. They teach you about trigonometry. They teach you about algebra. They teach you about a lot of other things. They don't teach you about how to do your taxes. They don't teach you about all the practical things that you need to learn about money. They don't teach you about inflation. Right? They don't teach you about all these things that we have to deal with and react with in real time in our lives. But God, Deuteronomy 14, 24 through 26, I thought this was cool doing this research. And if the way is too long for you, God is talking to the Israelites and he's saying, because of the place that I'm choosing for you, you need to exchange your tithe for money so that you're not carrying all of your things and belongings with you. And then when I get, you get to the place where I tell you to, change it back. We're going to have to do like some deals. He says, and if the way was too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, I, aka all of your goats, all of your chickens, all of your wine, right? When the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn your tithe into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. So even then, there was a concept, this is back in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, of exchanging and moving from things to a tangible technology that we can carry with us. Well, money's merely a tool. It's a neutral tool. It only has the value that we assign to it as society. But we know that the world's not a neutral place. Romans 8 says, For the world was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Across all of these objects, across all of these societies throughout space and time, different regimes, different government rulers, different geographies across the world, money has continued to do the same thing in the hands of sinful humans. 
which has become an instrument of power, an object of worship, and an idol that rivals God. So much so that Jesus even says it's a master that we can't serve alongside him. We can't serve God and money. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word there for money in the original text is actually mammon in Aramaic, which is a word that the early church left untranslated intentionally because mammon represented more than just a word or an idea. It embodied a demonic force in direct opposition to God that has a unique way of speaking to humans and changing and altering our behavior in light of the opposer and not in favor of God. Mammon is not just money, okay? That's how we retranslate it into English. Money or mammon is a force against God and his renewal of this world in the time that we live in. And so God doesn't believe that we can properly utilize money in the way that it should be. Actually, Jesus says, give to Caesars what is Caesars and give to God what is? We can serve the government and God in unique proportions. We can serve other things in their right place and position. But God says you can't serve God and money in the same way. Why is that? Money can do something Caesar can't do. Caesar's rule and reign is only like uh, uh, available to him to exercise in the region or the place that he has rule over, right? The greenback talks everywhere, right? The greenback is just as valuable in Bogota, Colombia, as it is the bodega corner store in New York. Money talks, and why would I need God if money is a fungible object that I can trade for anything that I want? Why do I need God when I can get what I want, when I want, where I want, how I want it? God looks at money as something differently. Money corrupts. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Delilah betrayed Samson for a fee. Achan's lust for money brought him to his death, and we read in the book of Acts about Ananias and Sapphira, if we remember that. Money can't satisfy. Solomon, one of the richest people to ever the richest guy to ever walk the face of the earth said, whoever loves money never has enough. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 15, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. As goods increase, so do those who consume them, aka government, the taxes. You can't run, they're going to find you. Death and taxes, that's a fact. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich man remits him no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost to some misfortune. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb. Shout out to all the new babies in here. I appreciate that prayer, uh, Emily, wherever she was. All right? And as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. There's something unique about our devotion to money and money's role in our lives. And money is not the root of all evil like maybe that you've heard. That's not what 1 Timothy 6 says. It says, for the love of money is the root of all evil, but we love it. I'm going to let you know that now. All my parents in the house, the best song in Moana, objectively, is Shiny by Tamatoa. Where, where are we at? Who, can I get, I get an amen? Or no, was that a, all right. All right. We are more like the giant crab that loves jewelry in the bottom of the realm of the underworld than we would like to believe. Okay, even in the newest Disney movie, right, Raya and the Last Dragon, the first place that they go to get the gemstone, there's a woman who actually dies of her own volition trying to trap her money, trying to booby trap people to keep them out. We're like the queen with the crown on her head with the little, you know, arm contraption to take it out underneath. We love money. And as I've grown in my faith and my desire to be more like Jesus, I can't help but recognize what God says in his scriptures about money and how it's challenged me. The Bible talks about money about 2,350 times, twice as much as faith and prayer combined. 15% of all of Jesus' recorded words were about money more than heaven and hell and prayer and faith. I don't know why I'm clapping. You know you do the claps in the, uh, in the text messages? I promise you, boo, boo, right? The only place where you see Jesus, the red letters outside of the gospel, was when Paul was talking about something that Jesus said all the time. Acts 20, 35, he said, it is more blessed to than it is to be talking about money. 
Why does Jesus give us so much instruction on the topic? Why does Jesus give us so much teaching to help us navigate and understand how we deal with money and how we relate to money? What did he know about money and possessions that we didn't? And today, I just want to unpack what Jesus has to say about money, which is a lot. So I'm going to try to keep it brief. Okay, I got look, this is the last week that the kids aren't in here, so I can actually go a little bit long. But I just do see a couple kids in there, so I'm going to keep them keep it tight. Let me pray really quick. Lord, I thank you so much for allowing us to come in here to hear your word. God, in your word, you don't talk about storing up seed, hoarding, hoarding up seed. You talk about scattering seed, Lord. You talk about you are the God who multiplies. You are the God who does a lot with a little. And God, I pray that our faith today would be grown. I pray that our faith today would be shaped. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the seeds and the words and the wisdom, Lord, to push back against mammon and its evil desires in the world. Lord, they said the, 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 the seeds that fell on the thorns were choked out because the man could not get over the deceitfulness of wealth and how it trapped him in his mind. I pray, Lord, that these seeds that fall today would not be choked out, Lord, by our desires for money. I pray that we would glorify you, that we would worship you, that we would store up heavenly treasures versus earthly ones. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, most of the time I'm going to spend today is going to be in Luke, but a lot of these stories are carried out amongst multiple Gospels. But the first theme that I want us to recognize, or that I think Jesus wants us to recognize, is that there's two kinds of treasures. There's earthly treasure, which is temporary and fleeting, versus heavenly treasure, which is eternal and everlasting. And God wants us to invest accordingly. Because whether you believe it or not, hey, I'm not a finance guy, I don't do that thing, we are all money managers, that's what you'll see. Whether you're the woman with two pennies, whether you're the rich fool, whether you're the rich man at the table or you're Lazarus under the table, we are all called to give an account. Whether you're one of the servants who came back with the meanness that God gave him out, or you're the one who did it, who buried it, thinking that he was a harsh man. God is calling us to give an account for the money that we are stewards of. Matthew 6, Jesus says, I'm gonna, before we go in, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of the amazing things that I found out when I was studying through this says in Deuteronomy 29, but also in Matthew, it says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. The heart is first. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Do we think that we can serve our God, that we can take up our cross and follow him if we don't deal with the, where our heart is? What does God say directly where our heart is? Where is our heart? Where our treasure is? Are we storing up earthly treasures or heavenly treasures? There's two different kinds. But Jesus, I'm a Bitcoin and moth and rust ain't going to steal what I got. I only know. I'm the only person that knows my seed phrase. And Jesus is going to look back at him, right? This is this. Like Nathaniel, he said, I know all things, buddy. And like Nathaniel, under the fig tree, I saw you hiding in your closet when you generated your seed phrase and wrote it down in your treasure wallet. All right, anybody who's not like a Bitcoin guy, that didn't make any sense. But that, even Bitcoin, is just man's invention of money in a digital age, but it too is subject to God and his creation. Jesus didn't say in this passage, he says, store up twice. He didn't say, don't store up treasures. He's saying just make sure it's the right kind. He didn't say don't store up treasures. He's just saying make sure it's the right kind. One of my favorite quotes, I don't know who said it, it said, you've never seen a U-Haul attached to a hearse because you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. After John D. Rockefeller died, somebody came and asked his accountant, I don't know if they were trying to find where the money was buried, but they said, how much money did he leave behind? And the accountant looks back at this person and says, all of it. The person was looking for some genius answer. All of the money got left. We can't take it with you. Jesus doesn't say treasure is bad. No. God's word says it gives us all things to richly enjoy. But did he say store up? Did he say hoard? No. Because this money on this earth, the earthly treasure will not last. I went to William and Mary William & Mary is the second oldest university to Harvard. It's a very prestigious school. I was the dumbest guy in there, right? For sure. 
But when you look at the size of like the school endowments of like the oldest schools in the country, Yale and Harvard and some of these schools, their endowments are massive. William and Mary is not even on the page. You know why? Because during the Civil War, they invested in Confederate war bonds. Talk about bad strategy. Picking the wrong team. Jesus is telling us how the war of these two kingdoms will end and that one of these currencies will collapse effectively Confederate war bonds. Join the North, the true North, heaven. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Guys say that I'm a, people say that I'm a little bit of like a fear monger of like in terms of money and stuff. I remember I lived next to Trevor in 2020, pandemic came out. I'm like, sell your houses, sell your kids, sell your clothes. All right, the government helicoptered everyone out of the economy. A little fun fact, right? They just printed our way out, not that we actually came out. But there's one of these movies in it that's uh, it's called The Big Short. Michael Burry is played by a guy named Steve Carell. Anybody seen the movie? Okay. So Christ is like the Michael Burry in this story, being irresponsibly short Earth's treasures in light of an imminent collapse that no one believes him of. And is warning money managers to reallocate their wealth from a tranche of risky collapsing investments Mammon is selling them as triple-A rated bonds in favor of a heavenly treasure, which serves as a credit default swap, backed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the insurance of God himself. Which money do you want to invest in? Flip to Luke 3. Really quick, this is very interesting. This isn't the Jesus part, but <clears throat> John the man who would come before Jesus is talking to um, this crowd of people who came up to him. Um, and let me see. Verse 7. I should I didn't write that down there. He said, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. They're asking him, how do they live the transformed life? What is this baptism thing going to do to me? How is it going to transform our heart? Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as a father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham, even now the axe is laid. And the crowd says, let me just skip down to verse 10. What then shall we do? He answered, then, whoever has two tunics is to share with him uh, who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Shout out to all the, the finance people in there. Okay? And he said... Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from any of the threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. They're like, yo, how do we have a transformed life after this baptism thing? And he's like, money one, money two, money three. Even John, not even Jesus, had an idea that before we get into this whole transformed life, we got to deal with this money thing. They weren't even asking him about that. Isn't that crazy? When somebody's like trying to give you a pitch, like use car salesman, if anybody does use car sales, Carvana's having some tough, you know, downturns, but Target also dropped 25% the other day. Crypto is risky, right? Let me stop. Y'all ain't in the markets. That's how I know. I'm trying to check y'all to see where y'all at in the markets. Y'all not really in the markets. All right, let's flip to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. To the story of the dishonest money manager. So Jesus is talking to his apostles and the disciples at this point, and he tells them a story. This isn't a real thing. He gives them a parable. Jesus is the master storyteller. I, I was like blown away when I came up to this. And let's start in verse one. He said, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. So this guy was rich. He had a guy, other people to manage his money. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. This manager isn't doing their job, Okay. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. And I ain't too ashamed to beg. Hey, I was about to start singing in there. Uh, Y'all know that song. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first one, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take down your bill and write 80. 
Okay, if you're listening into this story, you can tell that this guy is trying to curry favor so that like, yo, you saved me a 50 spot, you saved me a 20 spot, like I'll let you come sleep out in the garage. Because he wasn't going to have a job entrusted to him after that. So he's trying to make friends before this whole thing goes back and he turns the books back into Jesus. And everybody who's listening to the story at this time, right, they don't have the knowledge that we have reading the rest of the story. They're like, oh, he about to get a beaten, you know, like the other siblings when another one's about to get in trouble. But thinking this guy is about to get trouble, in trouble, listen to what Jesus says, which I think is important. Sorry, Caleb. He says, the master commended the dishonest manager. You're like, all right, what just happened? Time out. Time out. We got to slow down here. He commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you to make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails, get in the right currency, get in the right type of treasure, that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. God, Jesus was flipping a paradigm on his head. It was a paradox. G.K. Testerton says that paradox is a truth standing on its head, waving its legs at you to try to get its attention, right? He's flipping a paradigm on his head to say, we can take temporal, something that will fail and convert it into something that will last forever. And he also is giving them a different paradigm too that you are a manager, you are a finance person, which was so weird to them. And he said, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Okay. This parable is equally important to the rich person as it is the poor person. God is not asking how much you give, but what you do with what you give. That is what God is asking. And not only is money a tool, we see that money is a test. Money is not only a tool, money is a test. And he said, and if you have not been faithful in which is another's, who will give you that of which is your own? The first thing also that is a paradigm of true ownership. There's nothing that you truly own. If you're in real estate, Britain, right? You're, you're, you've been in real estate for a while. You pay off your house what do you still have to pay every year? Property taxes, you don't still own it. I know the real estate people in here mad, all right? You don't actually own it. Jesus is saying there is something on the other side that you will actually have ownership of. Completely new paradigm. Flip the script. All right, let me stop. All right. Uh, where am I at? Um, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This reminded me, Jesus is the master owner of an account that we effectively have a blank check to. God is the owner of all things, and we're simply his stewards, seeking the best place to invest the owner's money for the best return. And we will all have a 360 review, a performance review, at the end of our term of service where we will give an account. Anyone seen the Disney movie? I mean, I feel like we're all in that right age. Blank check? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Preston Blake, Tone Loke. Oh, it was such a good movie. But effectively, this kid gets a blank check, and he uses an alias of Mr. McIntosh, using a, a McIntosh program to print off a million dollars or to go withdraw a million dollars from the bank and then this kid goes and buys everything he wants. This kid got a slide out the, the bedroom window into the pool. I was, yo, as a kid, that's like the one thing that I wanted in life. It was a slide that came, and he had the go-karts. He, he went to the mall. He had the full-time limo driver. I don't know what that dude's name was, but it was a super cool movie. And you can tell what done. He bought the house for $300,000 back then, okay? Right, that's insane. We don't need to get into that. But we're like Preston Blake in that our name is on God's account. And we have unlimited access to his funds. And his money manager, God, as his money manager, God trusts us to set our own salary. We draw needed funds from his wealth to determine our living standards. And one of the gifts and challenges of free will that we have is figuring out how much that is, which will change and which will be different from person to person. 
which scripture doesn't say. He doesn't say how much to invest, but he does say where to invest. Jesus' message in the kingdom of heaven, the way God views money and possessions, he pulls out of the parable. People who understand the eternal promises of God, different than if you're not a Christian, need to understand in light of eternity how we are to manage and steward God's wealth because we are money managers. Money is a means and not an end. It is a means to an end that extends beyond us and lives into eternity. If we handle God's property well here on earth, he will give us property of our own in heaven. But it doesn't matter how much we've been given, okay? We're going to go to Luke 12. Jesus gives us two more stark examples. I'll pretty much kind of land the first part here. Everyone's like, you got part two, part three. Everyone's looking at their watch now. I should not say timed things anymore because everybody, look, everyone's laughing because I get all these texts like, in the middle of the sermon, like I can't see it, you know? (laughs) The parable of the rich fool. Thank you, Kent. (laughs) Luke 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter of you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Be on guard, be watchful of all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Okay? He's thinking like a good business owner. He's thinking like a good capital allocator. In light of all of the things that I could do, where should I and how should I grow this business? What should I do in order to store more crops? Not necessarily a bad thing. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Let's upgrade the capital equipment. And I will say to my soul, this is where it changes. So you have ample goods laid up for you many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. You contrast that with the woman in Mark chapter 12. You all don't need to go there. One of the fascinating things that I just, I never noticed about this stuff until you like dive into it. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. You can flip there if you want to. Talking about the widow's offering. And it says, and he, he being Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Okay. This was an intentional act. It didn't say Jesus happened to see. It said he sat down across from the treasury's box. God is looking. God is watching. God cares about the details. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He feeds and cares for every sparrow. He cares about each blade of grass. It said God makes the grass grow in Psalms. Each blade, God cares about the details. So he sat close enough to this treasury box, and he bought his disciples with him. That would have been weird, like everyone's huddling around. Like, I don't know what Jesus' eyesight was like, but it had, at least my eyesight is, it had to be pretty good in order for him to see this part. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, come on, come on, and everyone's huddling around. You know that gets weird when people like huddle around the offering basket. You ain't never seen somebody make change out the offering bucket. They brought a 20 and then they, they turned it into a 10 and a 5. Let me. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had to live on. Being rich towards God or being rich towards yourself, it's all in direct proportion. This is why the sermon, I'm not talking about percentages. I will talk a little bit at the very end about the tithe. I will talk about some practical things. But how much we give, how frequently give to what we give to, 
is in proportion to the value of the gift that we believe we have found or we have received. It's not a specific number. We're all looking for instruction. Well, God, how much should the man have put in for retirement? How much uh, should this, should this woman have kept a penny for herself? Like, was that actually good stewardship? God is not giving us prescriptive measures in the New Testament. Jesus is not on what we should give and where we should give. I'll let the Spirit do the conviction on that part. It says to each one the Spirit convicts. But God is assessing where we are at in our hearts, where we are at. Okay, theme two. All right, I'm moving quickly through this. Okay, what's that song? Is it give it away, give it away, give it away now? You get back so much, is that who? Red Hot Chili Peppers. You get back so much more and we discover true joy. So there's a story about this guy we spoke about in summer, somewhere in the past, a guy named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was raised, grew up in Portland, Oregon, raised in a Christian home. His parents were a little bit like the people you think would might be in Portland. I don't know what I think about Portland. My views of Portland were really shaped during like the pandemic, which is really not a good light. I'm sure it's better than that. I'm, I really do. But they were more like, go live life, you know, like they were kind of like, go be adventurous, go and do, you don't need shoes, you know? That was kind of the household that he grew up in. But he, he stumbled across this Aka, they're called the Aka uh, Ecuadorian group of Indians or savages. And he said, um, and he had been practicing and preaching, he had done a radio program, he had been speaking at a bunch of evangelical revivals across the country, but he said, God, I'm going to leave everything in America because I want to go preach the gospel to the unreached people groups in Ecuador. And so he studied for two years trying to learn to read and write the language. And he convinces four buddies to go down with him to this place. So in 1952, he left down. He went to Ecuador. And for several years, as they get onto the island, they're just making their way, trying to understand like more and more, not the island, to the country. That's to the country. All right, that's not, that's not right. Sorry. But they're trying to, Caleb, we need to get this out of here. Um, so they're trying to um, just make slight inroads, right? You don't move into the neighborhood, hey, you know, kick down the door. They're just slowly building relationship with these people. And so after about three years, they had started connecting with women and children, and then they flew their plane down to this beach area. And when they got down there, there was uh, a small period of time where the women and the children and a lot of the villagers came out. And then a little later, 10 warriors from this tribe come out and kill them, all four of them. But Jim Elliott leaves one of the most amazing quotes, and he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. One of those Indian men ended up becoming a Christian and neglecting the tribe that he'd grown up in, who had never had any contact with the outside world. But in Matthew 13, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven being like a treasure so valuable, so valuable that a man, not out of pity, not out of obligation, not out of a duty, it says, in joy, sold everything that he had to obtain it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Like Jim and the man in the parable, we find true joy in this present age by understanding that we will receive something far more valuable in the future age. Present joy, Kent talked about yesterday, the, the difference between faith and hope. Present joy is in light of knowing that there's something better, there's a future joy, what we talked about hope last week. And our first and primary treasure is a person. The first and primary treasure that we should as Christians sell everything that we have to obtain is Jesus. Nothing else but Jesus. Everything else, every other trapping, every other thing, pales in comparison to Jesus. Philippians 3, 7 said, but whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Says that the Christ is the ultimate joy and knows nothing surpasses the joy that we find in knowing him. I want to become the kind of person who loves the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength 
and I want to count money as rubbish in order that I might know Jesus and Jesus crucified. I pray that we become a church whose treasure is Jesus and that we search deep in our hearts to discover something more valuable that we can get in this present world. Our second treasure doesn't just end there. Charlie Munger says, show me the incentives and I'll show you the behavior or I'll show you the outcome. You guys are not up on the investing side. I thought I was talking more like finance people. I thought some, some Buffett heads, right? Right, to people that are like real deep into that. But our second treasure is a place. It's heaven. Jesus says in John 14, verses 2 through 3, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That is where I am. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Don't we want to live in heaven with Jesus where God will be our light like we read last week in Revelation 21? Where there's no more tears. Every tear will be wiped away. Right? We live in a city with gold and jewels and sapphires and water running from the throne through the middle of the city from the river of life. Hebrews 11 says, For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Praise God for all the people who was doing the heavy work here in the building. Because I am neither a designer or a builder. We needed some other people to come fill that obligation. But thirdly, Jesus does talk about other things that can be our treasures in light of storing up heavenly treasures. He says our treasure is also power, pleasure, and possessions. Let me, let me go there really quick. Luke 19, 15 through 19, God uses the parable of a noble man who gave earthly money, 10 min minas, right? Let's $10 to 10 servants, and he blesses the first two. And the first one says, hey, God, I took your one and I brought back 10. And Jesus said, I will put you over or give you control or dominion over 10 cities in heaven. Power. That's actual power. To the second one, he said, into you, five. Jesus is saying, not only is your treasure these things, but economically makes sense. Pleasures. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The pleasures, the things that we don't even know we will understand. All I can think of, sometimes, this is a really weird thing. I like, you like lump me into that coffee culture. When you wake up and it's like some fresh brewed coffee, it's like a pleasure. I don't like, I, it's great. It's great. Or like walking through a, like a dying mall and you smell the Cinnabon. The, the vents that they got coming up out of it. Don't lie. Don't act like y'all being Auntie Anne's. Every mall in America is dying. The Auntie Anne station is popping. <laughs> don't lie. I don't even know what the pleasures will be, but it said at Jesus' right hand, there will be pleasures forevermore. Possessions. This is the story of the rich young ruler when he comes to Jesus and Jesus explains a few of the commandments to this young rich ruler. And then he goes, yeah, Jesus, I'm good. I've been doing that my whole life. I've been, I've been keeping up with all the commandments. And he neglected the first commandment, which says, do not have any other idols above God. And he says, go sell everything you have get to the poor and follow me. And the rich young ruler walked away sad and disheartened. But he missed the return profile of the investment story that Jesus was saying. He walked away. He didn't even get to hear because then after he leaves disheartened, Jesus turns around and talks to his disciples. And he says, this is the trade that he missed out on. He was to gain a hundredfold of his possessions. That's a 10,000% return. Talk about a return in a portfolio if you're a VC guy. What's interesting about this in Mark, when you read this, it says, anyone who has left mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, houses, or land in my name will also receive a hundredfold in this life and in the eternal life or the life to come. Jesus, I don't believe, as I read the Gospels and I understand this, was talking about the prosperity gospel. What I know him to mean and what I've seen reflected in the scriptures is more like when we give our lives to Christ, we step into a much larger family of spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ and lands 
and tithes and fruits that are not ours. That was a radical concept. Like, there wasn't a whole lot of, unless, sorry, Gav, this thing is doing its own thing at this point. That was a radical concept that we would share in the inheritance, right, of land and possessions with other people. In Acts 2, the early church sold their possessions and had everything in common and said there wasn't anyone who had a need among them. They sold all of their things and became spiritual brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, giving up their land and their possessions. Paul's entire ministry was funded and supported by other brothers and sisters in Christ. He would show up to a place, he would show up to a church, he would show up to a city, and the generosity of the people ahead of him, he would even send letters ahead of himself asking for an offering, and the brothers and sisters of Christ funded Paul's ministry. When we sacrifice, when we give up these things and step into the family of God, we gain so much more. There's a story in Acts chapter 19 where magicians stole the books that they have and it said they gave them 50 pieces of silver or the equivalent of $6 million so that the word of God would be preached. That type of generosity, that type of sharing of wealth, that type of opening up of one's assets and resources had never happened in this time or this period, especially going to a new city and a new place. Let's be like the church in Acts. Let's be like Zacchaeus, where after Zacchaeus had dinner with Jesus, he goes, Jesus, I'm going to right every wrong. I'm going to go make all of the things right that I had done to the people before, all of the, the, the Israelites I have exploited, and I'm going to give back half of my possessions to the poor. And Jesus didn't say, good job, Zacchaeus. Good job, buddy. What does he say? Today, salvation has come to this house. Our salvation our access to God is somehow tied in these weird ways to how we think about money. Let's be like the Macedonians who in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, by the grace of God, gave out of their most severe trial and gave as much as they were able and well beyond their means. So much so that Paul said he was brought to weeping and tears and thinking about the love of God and the grace that he received from what they had given. Let's be like the Macedonian church. Let's be like the Israelites in Exodus 36 who got so caught up in the thrill of giving, Moses had to shut them down. Moses was like, yo, bro, we cutting off the bucket. We cutting off the bucket. And Moses called Basilel and Oholab and every craftsman who, in whose mind the Lord had put skill, not me, and whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. Looks like this building. Praise be to God. Let's go. Come on. They, they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring so much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave the command, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution to the sanctuary. Cut it off. Let's be the kind of church, let's be the kind of people that get so caught up in what God is doing that, that we got to shut off the spigot. We got to put out a, a, a comment in the Summer Weekly newsletter, stop giving. We cut the link off. The link is no longer on the website. Giving is not just a luxury of the rich, but also a privilege of the poor. And if you are rich, which I would argue we all are, actually, if you make more than $30,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the richest people, richest people to ever walk the planet Earth. Just for perspective. 2 Corinthians 9, which is probably the most prominent chapter of giving in the Bible, says, and I'll end here. Oh, not technically. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And it says at the very end, this isn't a chore, this isn't a duty. He ends the verse by saying, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. How much of a gift, how much of a treasure it is to be generous body and a generous people, especially if we're rich. We're called to be generous to everyone, but God specifically has a heart for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. I'm going to read down a couple verses here, and then I'm going to shut it down. 
Deuteronomy 15, 10 through 11, give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. There will always be the poor among you. That's where you hear that phrase. That is why I'm commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Proverbs 22, 9. What good is it, my brothers, if, everyone, if, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James 2. But if anyone has the world's good and sees a brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? What a gift we have. What a treasure we have to give to the poor, to the needy, to those around us, to the body of Christ, to share in such a way that everyone among us has everything in common and none of us has a need amongst us. Some practical words. I hope that as a church, we can become a place, obviously in the right context, small groups, MCs, that we can talk about money in an open and an accountable fashion, okay? I've been around the church long enough to where, you know, you might have a guy that'll come talking about, hey, bro, you know, talking about their deepest, darkest, you know, desires and sins and their thought life and, and other things. And talking about everything else, this, that, and the third, and wanting to share software to look at browser histories together. On the first, first MC, like, I'm like, come on, this is a lot. This is a lot. But then you'd be like, hey, bro, how much are you giving? They'd be like, oh, yeah, we don't really talk about. How much you make? Uh, we don't really do. Can we be the place in the church? Can we be real and bring all things to the light? Because all things will come to the light, whether now or later. Let's bring them to the light in light of a loving God and in light of a community that understands and deals with all of the same problems. Jesus knew we would have these problems. Why did he talk about it so much? So that we can talk about it together. So that we can be the kind of people that spur each other on in generosity to do good works. And we can release the grip that money has on our life. I pray that we would all tithe. The word tithe means a tenth, but the Old Testament Israelites would typically tithe Three tithes, one for the priest, one for the feast, one for the least. Three tithes. So they would typically tie to the priests and the Levites for the Levites to keep the church running, their spiritual health in order. They partied a lot annually and then a big party every seven years. Jubilee, we talked about that before, okay? But that were, there was a tithe for that party and then there was a tithe for the ordo, orphans, the widows, and the poor. That typically accounted to 23% of their wealth per year, give or take. And if you do give 10%, God just doesn't want any 10%. Like, you know when the cake is looking good and you get that first slice, you'd be like, yeah, like, you know. And by the end, it's hot outside, it's other side, got a whole bunch of cuts. Somebody who wasn't skilled with the knife. And so then you just get in the lumped pieces and it's like, it's all going down in the same place. Oh yeah, I don't care how it looks. You want the first and the best. That's what God is talking about when he talks about first fruits. It's not just any 10% of your money. It's the first 10% to acknowledge to God that all good things flow from you. We are dependent on you. We need you. Micah 3.10 says, test me and see that if you bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that I won't pour out a blessing, you won't have room to receive. Living on 90% in service to God is, greater, is a greater blessing than we can imagine living off 100% on our own. Look to Jesus and what he says about money. He says a lot and it stings a lot. It's the most challenging stuff that I read, honestly. Being a rich person in America... It's the most challenging stuff that I read. It's the stuff that I wrestle with. It's the stuff that keeps me up at night. Like, uh, like Solomon says, looking at your portfolio, logging into your 401k and seeing it's down 48% year on year. Don't act like it doesn't affect you because it does. It does for me at least. I'm going to keep it real. It's the challenging stuff. 
One book that I would tell everyone to go and read, um, there's two books, actually. There's a book called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Flip the script, change the game, on high money and reading. There's a deeper book that he goes into. It's called Money, Eternity, and Possessions. It's pretty much like the encyclopedia of like how to navigate money and possessions as a Christian. It's like one of the most comprehensive books. It's like 500 pages long. It's incredible. If you want to have that and talk about that, I would love to meet and talk about that with other believers and other people who are struggling with their faith, struggling with their finances and how we deal with that. Like my house is open. Like our checkbooks are open. Our bank accounts are open. Let's talk about it and let's be open and let's spur each other on to do good works in Christ. And with that, every week we come and we recognize that like Philippians 2 or like the treasure found in a field, Jesus left everything that he had access to in heaven. Gave up everything, his divinity, all of the pleasures being at the right hand of God forevermore, and sold it all for us. Gave it all for us. Died on the sin so that, yet while he was rich, he was made poor so that we may become rich. Jesus gave up his divinity, his life, his rights, his access to the throne so that we could have the same access that he has. And every week we celebrate that by doing communion in our service as a tangible reminder that God gave so that for God so loved the world, he, so we give, not out of compulsion. We recognize that, we honor that, we think about that every week. So as we do that, Take time to think about what God has given for you, what God has done for you. And in light of that, let's think about ways that we can invest in heavenly treasure. So one of the ways we could do that, um, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, um, there's multiple options. You can use the cups in the back of the tables or the, the pews, or you can come down the aisles and receive the bread in the cup here and then filter out around the sides. If you're not a Christian, I would love to consider, I'd love you to consider thinking about what whole money has had on your life. What impact has it had on your life? You know, not growing up with money, having money. All of us come to this conversation with a different viewpoint on money, but Jesus is very clear about where and how we should invest if you're a believer. Consider what that means for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to come here and to listen to learn your word today. I pray that we would be a generous people, that we would be a generous church, and we would give, not out of compulsion, but in joy, like your word says, in light of the response and to the value of the treasure that we have found, which is salvation through Jesus Christ, that we didn't earn in our own merit, that we didn't earn in our own works, Lord, but we get to lovingly and graciously respond to. I thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, and I thank you for all that you're doing here in this body, in this church, in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.